Welcome back. Uh, our, they often call this the graveyard shift, so that if you need to go to sleep, just uh, do so. As I can remember my maths teacher telling me, wonderful old man, he knew I wasn't that interested in maths, and he just gave me advice. He drew a little cross up on the board behind him. He said, look, Tony, I know you're not interested, but just I, I need to... I need, to know, I need to not know that you're not interested, so just stare at that cross and daydream and it'll be fine. <laughs> um, now, is Rob back? Okay, when Rob uh, comes back, we'll make a little bit of a final gesture with the books. Um, Rob's organised it all for us. Uh, this is our final module. I wanted to just give thanks, though, to uh, a guy who made a lot of this possible, and that's Tim Tracy, who's flown from Alabama to at the conference. Can we all give Tim? <laughs> Tim's a renegade. He looks like he's a hippie, but actually he's a corporate mergers and acquisitions lawyer, if you can believe that. <laughs> And from Alabama, it's just a great brain. I mean, you, you've kind of messed with our stereotypes, but... If he didn't look like that, I wouldn't believe he was from Alabama. Okay. <laughs> That's true. Uh, um, well, what happened was that uh, a couple of years ago, uh, um, another guy, uh, David... Uh, uh, um, what's David's...? David Wilbur. This guy, through Second Road, he'd heard about me uh, somewhere on the internet and um, uh, David uh, actually is a Top Gun fighter pilot off, you know, aircraft carriers and he was a squadron leader who um, in, in the US Navy had really built up a, a real reputation for culture change and uh, but he'd left and he was then running his own consulting company on risk management and he was really intrigued by Second Road because you'd think, you know, that if you ever needed to be left-brained and linear, it would be in that kind of fighter pilot world. But he just gave me really rich stories on how the left-brain procedural approach runs out of gas and you need intuition um, to save yourself. And so that got him interested in the creative and cultural side of change. So he contacted me and we're having a conversation and then we find out we're both Christians. And so the conversation veered off onto you know, Genesis and creation, and uh, and then he said, I've got this guy, like, friend of mine, um, I'd really like you to meet him, like, he's a little bit dangerous and strange, but, you know, and he occasionally uses four-letter words. I said, oh, David, I'm from Australia, like, I mean, it's not a problem. So I think he then took you to lunch and, and said, he said to Tim, Tim, there's this guy in Australia, he, and Tim said, you mean Tony Goldsby-Smith? I've been listening to Gospel Conversations for a a long while. And uh, so that's how we met. But then Tim knew you, David, and uh, introduced me to you, and uh, the rest is history. So that's why he's here. <laughs> um, we are at this uh, end of all things, the, the destiny of humanity. I mean, clearly with that focusing question, if you ask a question around anything and you want what David, you would call the final cause, um, that the, the real explanation of any identity 
is only achieved and is best achieved through its purpose, through its culmination. And um, I've seen that happen, by the way, again and again in the corporate life, that the, the transformative power of purpose, but generally, it's missing in action. In, in most organisations, it's a cliche, it's bland. People want it. They want some sense of what we used to call the noble vision. And in Second Road, my company, we were really famous for being able to help people develop a noble vision. And we always said noble, by the way, um, altruistic, not just, uh, uh, just self-serving. So that's where we're at. You know, to real, for us as Christians to be advocates in the world of a vision for humanity, we have to have the final cause. What's the end game? And that's what we're going to investigate now. Um, facetiously, I, I, I got hooked on alliteration with M's, and I came to this one, and I couldn't get, like, this is, David, can you just shut your ears? I don't think you're going to like this. It's kind of, is the end game a marriage or a motel visit with a tourist visa? So, Shocked. <laughs> the, um, I mean, I'm being a bit facetious slightly, but the idea of what I call the geotransport picture of the end game is heaven. You know, I, I kind of, it's a vision of moving geographies from here to heaven, wherever that is, and it's a transport vision I get from here to heaven. Well, oh, there's no particular vision as to how I might change. Oh, it's a motel, you know, just go and the motel's in heaven. Um, and uh, clumsy as that is, I think it does capture some of the thinking we might have, and that's not a powerful vision. The alternative is this incredible picture that uh, was called deification or theosis that the patristics were famous for. And it clearly is a climax of where this, uh, uh, these conversations are going. Now, um, so, and if you can remember, you know, from when we began and we were looking at the incommensurable qualities of the mind, the unity of expression. You know, somebody once said to me, and I think it's really true, language is, is a unifying tool. Language just unifies things into itself. The ultimate picture of that is some kind of unification between God and creation, obviously, this idea of oneness. Uh, that can sound, um, I suppose, philosophical, dangerous, but to be honest, the best metaphor of it is actually marriage, which we all know is a consistent biblical image of the relationship God wants. And so, We've been doing poetry. Um, this, is the, this will be our final one, and it's actually um, from the Song of Songs, which Gregory of Nyssa took incredibly seriously as a type of Christ and the Church. So this is Gregory of Nyssa's homilies on the Song of Songs, and that's quite breathtaking. So I thought, um, and, and this is from the beginning of homily six, it's just the Song of Songs, chapter three. I'll just read out the first verses. It's, it's beautiful poetry. Upon my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him and did not find him. I called him 
and he did not hearken to me. I will arise then and go around in the city, in the markets and in the streets, and I'll seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him and I did not find him. The watchmen making their rounds in the city found me. Have you not seen him whom my soul loves? It was but a moment after I parted from them that I found him whom my soul loves. I seized him and did not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Uh, well, if you want to read Homily 6, you should see what Gregory makes of that. We'll get a little bit into that, but it's a beautiful piece of poetry. So with that, um, I guess the, the freeze frame or the unframing would be this, what I call the geotransport vision of going to hell, the motel model, um, which essentially has again the same dualism in it. As, as, and, and it's something that uh, I guess David's only re recently, last few years, I've got out of my mind that the idea of God being, we tend to geographise God. If he's not here and present, he's somewhere else. He just, and what we've done is we've made God part of the created order because he's just bigger than us. That's all. I mean, he's a lot bigger. Uh, but if he's not here, and, and, and immediately you begin to say, well, this is just, this cannot define his infinity. This, this simply can't. If I merely geographise him. And then if I geographise me kind of, you know, going to heaven, which I, I know a lot of people now have realised what a mistake that is in the reading of the New Testament, but nonetheless it's still in many people's minds. The heresy of heaven, I think Bonhoeffer called it. Um, and, uh, but then implicit in that whole geography is that we just move ourselves from here to there. It's very limited in how we change. How we change. And in order for us to finish with a vision, it's as if, again, going back to paradigms, there are sort of tectonic plates that we need to shift in our mind to begin to apprehend and see more, more clearly the, the potential um, in this picture. I think one of the very interesting things about this, and it's just a sort of a detour, just worth mentioning though, I think somebody that you and I would agree is the most conflicted, among the most conflicted two or three Christians in human history and gifted is Jonathan Edwards. Um, and Edwards had a vision of deification, there's no question about it. Um, you know, in the middle of the Puritan era, and he was conflicted because in a way, as you say, David, his metaphysics can with his religion and theology. Um, do you want to make a, just a little comment on poor old Jonathan Edwards? It is amazing, actually. Um, <clears throat> um, though in the Anglican tradition, th there were a lot of scholars and theologians who knew the church fathers, Jonathan Edwards did not have access to them. And yet a, a great deal of his, his theology of union with God reads like Gregory of Nyssa. And because he's getting it from scripture and reading in an you know, unexpectedly patristic way, and yet his theology of the pulpit and the pews is, a, is one of the most austere, late Augustinian, I mean, rhapsodies of terror 
um, you know, he is the sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, that, that title does not do justice to just how horrifying the picture of God is that he drew. He uh, could deliver sermons that actually had his parishioners fainting in the pews in terror. Uh, you know, you're like a spider held above a fire, the God who loathes you. You know, I mean, it was really... And yet, his metaphysics and his picture of union with God is one of infinite love transforming us evermore into the image of the Divine Son. Um, proving once again that human psychology is an odd thing. Um, yes. You can believe two things at once that contradict one another and somehow keep functioning. Yeah, it, it, he's an intriguing, um, absolutely intriguing man. I mean, his essay on the unpublished essay on the Trinity is breathtaking. But anyway, I just wanted to make the point that these things we're talking about, it's not as if there are two discrete camps. Same with Augustine. They're, it's almost as if, uh, in the case of Jonathan Edwards, he had a trajectory and a veering towards this and a drawing towards this that then the culture he was part of, the religious culture he was part of, was pulling him back. Um, and uh, You do have to ask a question, though. I mean... Um in the ancient world, it was common to preach or to teach different things to different levels of understanding. This was just thought to be the correct thing to do. The Gregory of Nazianzus, in one sermon, talks about the fires of hell, but then he switches into a more sort of puristic Greek register, and says, but of course there are those who would prefer to see this in a way more in keeping with the mercy of God. Um, because of course Gregory, all the Cappadocians were originists really, and he was almost certainly a universalist. But he thought it correct to scare those who needed to be scared. And I sometimes wonder if the same sort of rationalization went on with Jonathan Edwards. Yes, I, uh, I did um, interact with a Jonathan Edwards scholar who you know studied him back at the front, and um, I'm pretty sure I'm reporting this correctly. He said that that sermon was uncharacteristic, and that he was trying to copy his, I think his father's theology, which was a, definitely a theology of fear. But he gave me the idea that any, that that sermon was he could have been better than that. Anyway, let's not go right, there. Okay. I know. That's okay. On to this un trammeled vision of deification. Um, Jens Zimmermann um, wrote a book on humanism and uh, he, he, he has a chapter on deification and he just talks about, I love what he said, what a, that, that this doctrine of deification was not some kind of advanced unit, esoteric advanced unit for the patristics, it was central wasn't an optional extra in the Christian curriculum. And he says, quote, this theme of theosis, the deification of the human as God's redemptive plan for a fallen race, initiated through God's becoming human, is dominant among the church fathers. And of course, the great, the great statement, which probably lots of us know, and it's, I hear it variously attributed to Irenaeus and others, is God became man or human in order that humans could become God. Uh, your comment on the, this, the orthodoxy, as it were, of this vision? Well, not only is it central uh, to their reading of scripture and their understanding of salvation, 
it's the foundation of all the orthodox teachings we've inherited from the conciliar age. Even the co-equality of the persons of the Trinity at Nicaea, the argument principally is, how could anyone but God unite us to God in a deifying way? It's just assumed this is what the, if the Son is less than the Father and the Spirit less than the Son, then we've never truly come into contact with God and cannot be deified, it's just assumed. This is the doctrine, this is the, the weight this, the, of the, and all the Christological controversy center around the same thing. Christ must be wholly human and wholly divine precisely so that our humanity through his humanity can become divine. Uh, and when you look at the scriptures they're drawing on, you see that, well, this actually is a consistent theme. It's not just one verse that you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's also, um, you know, Paul's constant language of being transformed to the point where we know even as we're known. Christ in the Gospel of John praying to the Father that they all may be one as you and I are one, and that they share that glory that is the divine glory from, begin, from before the beginning of the world and all that. Uh, you are gods in John, to, you know, and if, if, him to whom, if those to whom the Logos came, he called gods, how is it you say that I blaspheme and saying I'm the son of God? And he goes, if you look, you begin to see that this theme of intimate union and transfiguration into the divine or into the divine glory runs throughout the New Testament. And the, the curious thing is how, how it is that it seems exotic now to us to suggest. It was not an optional extra. That is the gospel. You know, if you want to boil down the Christian story to a single formulation, that would be it. And any denial of that would be something other than Christianity. Yes. Yes, so they were using as it were, deification was the goal that had to be achieved and therefore only God could save us, not an angel, because an angel couldn't deify us. Right. They, they couldn't lift us high enough up. So it was a vision both of how low Christ had to go and how high Christ had to go in order to accomplish the same journey for us. Yeah. Um, it's true that when we look at the history of Nicaea, there was imperial pressure on one side, but that actually is not we can exaggerate that. That was just bringing an end to a debate that more or less had been won. What we call the Nicene Party now was, was arguing against a pretty well-established way of thinking of the Trinity that seemed, you know, to make sense of things. The Father is inaccessible, so he generates a secondary divine principle, a logos or son, you know, Philo of Alexandria, who was a contemporary of Christ, a Jewish thinker, called him the son, that was fine. And because he's a more economically <laughs> reduced version of God, so to speak, uh, he, he, he can interact with finite reality in a way that the father doesn't. But the status of the son then, is he a creature? Is he generated? Well, it's the, the exact distinction there was not as, as exactly made as we think it is. Is he the angel of mighty counsel, the highest? Uh, is he the angel Michael who leads the chorus of heavenly beings and earthly terrestrial beings? These were all disputes. What, what, what ultimately it came down to was that scripture, creed, personal experience said that 
then this is just assumed that what Christ brought into uh, the world was the real presence of God so that we might be united to it and transfigured into the divine. But how does this happen? Who joins us to the Father? The Son. But only the infinite can join us to the infinite. If the Son is less than the Father, he, like us, is infinitely far removed from God. So the Son must be equal to the Father. And then, in time, but what joins us to the Son? Well, the Holy Spirit in the life of the sacraments of the church, of spiritual, of the spiritual life itself. And so only God can join us to God if the Spirit joins us to the Son and through the Son to the Father, then the Spirit too must be God. We're not talking about three different entities. We're talking about God coming to us in the fullness of his Trinitarian life and sweeping creation up into that infinite life of love. Well, that vision is breathtaking. And um, in order, let's dig a bit deeper to try and get some of the helpful, I think, paradigm shifts. I like thinking of it as almost the tectonic plates of our mind, subconsciousness, to begin to accommodate this. and. In your uh, book, You Are Gods, you talk about uh, what at first appeared to me to be a long way off from deification, but it quickly became close to it, which is being and knowing. And uh, this, well, this is an interesting way to approach it philosophically, but what I think you're characterising is our modernist view of knowledge and, yeah. and knowing is that I'm here outside of an object I want to know about or something I want to know about. Um, and that subjective objective separation means that all of my inquiry comes from my asking questions. The object is inert, as it were. And you said that is uh, it's part of the dualistic model and it's, it's, it's conceptually or logically inaccurate. And you, you, you talk about all being, being intelligible and disclosing itself, that's part of being, as it were, and expressing and communicating. So yeah. uh, can you unpack that a little bit for us, this idea of being and knowing? Right, well, I mean, the, um, there are any number of dimensions to it. One is that certainly our modern epistemology for, for a long time has accepted the notion that the way we know the world is through a secondary representation, a representational, because it starts from the Cartesian and then Kantian, but ultimately um, uh, irrational prejudice that mind and world are inherently alien to one another. Uh, that the, the latter can be mirrored in the former only under the, the form of a dissemblance that translates the noumenon out there into a phenomenon in here. So neurological agitations are arranged by my brain and the world is represented to me, but I have no communion with it. Um, now I think that's false anyway. I think phenomenologically, uh, the way we reach out to the world is also the way the world reaches out to us. There's no reason not to presume uh, a shared principle of intelligibility that, that the world is mind-like and the mind is, is open to being and being open to the mind. In ancient terms, this is the principle of form, you know, that there's a form that 
is impressed both in that which is out there and in my mind under different modalities that allows a sort of nuptial union between my mind and the world. But also because of the, again, intentionality. Why do I wish to know any finite object? And again, if you pursue that question far enough, you end up with, with well, what we were talking about earlier today with Nicholas of Cusa, that all of that is premised upon a prior natural, insatiable, and infinite desire to know the whole of being, for mind and being so perfectly to coincide that there's no, that there's a point of indistinction between them. Between them. But that would then be a desire for God because that's what God is, the perfect unity of infinite knowledge and infinite being. Yes, and of course this, you know, when we can approach this word knowledge mm -hmm. as if it's very philosophical, but the most cursory glance through the New Testament and the Old Testament would say how high this is in priority for prophets and epistles that we would know God. I mean, I haven't done a word search, but it's everywhere, this idea yeah. of knowing as the goal of not, not to live a lazy, ignorant life, but a knowing life. The reason the chiasmus essay in my book begins there, rather with, than in the doctrinal material, is precisely that, to say that even your natural experience will not, will not submit to this formal division between the supernatural and natural ends. Uh, your, your rational desire to know itself operates already by the prior premise of a supernatural object and, and rationale. And, um, and so it was actually just sort of trying to ground or start talking about deification in a way that proceeds from a natural phenomenology of consciousness. Human experience. Yeah. And, and I um, personally, uh, well, A, I love it for a couple of reasons, um, but B, it does accord with my experience. Rather than there being two discrete things, out there's the object of my knowledge, here, me inquiring. As you say, no, 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 no. The, the being or anything I'm looking at is wanting to disclose itself to me. It, has, it is wanting to give itself to me. And so there's something in the being that is reaching out to me and making itself available. And that any uh, vision of being that is living must be a vision of being that is reaching out yeah. and disclosing itself. That's on the being side. My side, on the knowing side, I seem to have within me the shadow of being, you know, the, the, to, uh, the potentiality of that. I, I don't, I'm actually never agnostic of what I'm looking at. I've, I've got mental models that I've, I often wonder where they come from, these mental models. I mean, I don't often, I don't feel I invent them. I feel I'm sort of participating in them like chordal structures in music or something. So mm -hmm. there's an interaction on both sides between being and knowing. Well, I mean, consider what would it mean uh, say I, I say to you, well, there there exists a universe, but it is a universe that cannot appear in thought. It cannot be sensed. You know, it cannot be. You it cannot be seen or in any way intuited, touched or even conceived. So, in what sense does it exist? 
Because when we ask the question properly, we begin to realize that the, the very idea of existence is already the idea of manifestation. Something is because it can manifest itself. If it doesn't matter, then it doesn't exist. There's no, you know, the unmanifest, the wholly unmanifest is the non-existent. Yes, and this... Which or, means that you also can't draw a partition between mind and... and uh, yeah, this awful Cartesian concept that I think we all have it in us somewhere. There's being and then derivative from that, there is knowing about it, as if that is some secondary thing. Whereas what you're saying, no, 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 no. It's inconceivable to think of any being that is not immediately manifesting itself and sharing itself. And this, of course, is because, as you said, the whole universe is structured after the archetype of the Godhead who, in whom this is truer than anywhere else, this giving of being and no ability, no ability. Uh, of course, you know, the other, one of the other passages I regularly recite to myself is the opening of John's, of the first epistle of John, which really says, I mean, that exactly what we're talking that which was in the beginning, which we have seen and touched and hands have handled concerning the word of life, and then he breaks off, the life was made manifest. That life which we've seen and heard was with the Father. That life has been made manifest. And I mean, if we've never been stunned by those words, it's the life that architected the universe was made manifest. So this idea of disclosure is everywhere there in that uh, wonderful passage. So, of course, that is wonderful, um, and yet uh, can still sound a little bit academic, which now takes us back to your two words for knowing, the second of which was, could also be intimate relations uh, in a marriage, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, episteme and gnosis? And that, of course, takes us to Gregory, where I began, um, because I began reading out from the Song of Songs 3, and if you now read or re-listen to that song through what David has just said, you start to see how knowledge becomes love, because she's, she's search, reaching out for him whom my soul loves and try to find him. And that is a, I mean, the way Gregory in the homily develops it is exactly what you're talking about. He talks about our desire to reach out, to know the meaning of all things as a reaching out for God, which he sees as a, a, the desire for a marriage with God. Um, uh, your, your comments on, on the homily, any thoughts in relation to Gregory and his picture of knowing and marriage in the songs? Well, no, I mean, uh, he, again, and uh, Nicholas Acusas, another, you know, got one of the definitions of God is that which I desire in all desire, you know, is that, uh, and, and you should point out, it's the Song of Songs. Uh, he's modeling his commentary on Origen's commentary on the right. Song of Songs, and then there are later commentaries like Bernard of Clairvaux's all terrifically uh, unembarrassed by, by the uh, sexual language because, because they see it as the only sort of language intense enough to capture the notion of the sort of intimacy and love that goes beyond simple conceptual, uh, beyond uh, 
uh, the attempt merely to conceptually to master an object outside yourself. Instead, the longing that draws us is, is really a longing for, for union at, 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 a, at a level so deep and of, with such intimacy that one, that the division, or even, and again, here the earlier Augustine uses this, uh, this uh, nihil intersit, let there be nothing in between. Uh, God and soul are so fused in, in the love of union that we, that we cannot allow even for an interval of difference between them. Or uh, Maximus uses that language, or we met, someone asked earlier about the language of becoming uncreated. It's so thoroughly, uh, this knowledge is so thoroughly to be immersed in the, in the divine glory that like the fire uh, saturate, like the iron plunged in the fire, it becomes all fire, you know. And um, the interest is for Gregory and others, this isn't just the final state we're talking, this isn't a discovery. This longing has to be at the very basis of our natures to be spirit at all, you know. And, and it's beginning it's, now, I think you have this wonderful phrase, I don't know if it's yours or you borrowed it, the circle of glory. Oh, that's from Gregory of Nyssa, yeah. Do, do you not see how this circle of glory, because it, for him, there's a circle of glory that is the Trinity, the Father knowing himself and the Son and the Spirit bringing this back in the delight and love, but then that is impressed on our nature in the sense that God descends to us so that the Spirit of God transforms our spirit into an ever-brightening mirror of the divine glory so the image, the Son, becomes ever more perspicuous in us and enters up into the principle of our own, our own hidden principle of thought and trans, uh, transforms us with the light of the, of the Father. So the Trinitarian, that's the chiasmus in fact. The Trinitarian processions are then mirrored in a sort of inverse way in our own transformation into God so that we become ever more, uh, an ever more pure mirror of the whole Trinitarian life and he calls this the circle of glory, do you not see how this circle of glory is repeated in the soul that is drawn in God, to God in, in bonds of love? That's um, fascinating because um, I've often in my own self thought that, let's call it ennui, uh, nihilism, where you lose passion. I mean, that's a terrible, terrible experience. Yeah. It's almost like, I mean, people wouldn't normally, this is why I find the word sin so useless. Um, but it, we all know the affliction of ennui or boredom or, or, and we know it's wrong, you know, whereas when we're passionate about almost something, it could be a task or it could be a person, it, it seems to bring us alive, it seems to animate us, we're participating in the energies of God. Well, I mean, in Christian contemplative tradition, and you, this is very well diagnosed by, by the greatest mind of the Egyptian desert tradition of Agrius Ponticus in the fourth century, the most difficult demon to overcome, or that could be demon in a more objective sense, or just meaning the temptation, uh, is uh, acedia, or akadia in Greek, which is ennui, <laughs> the sense of the pointlessness of things, uh, the, the, the uh, a sort of melancholy listlessness that, that has lost the passion of the love for God. And this is actually the most difficult 
spiritual temptation to overcome wow, for the desert contemplative. How interesting. Um, uh, it sort of says we as Christians, where, wherever we are, in, in whatever profession or situation, should be the ones who are the most passionate, uh, with a flame, with enthusiasm, which we can draw from God. And I think what you're doing, David, is helping us connect that local passion to the end of all things and the circle of glory. Um, now, you, uh, in this same chapter, have a very, very, um, I think, useful and, and quite intriguing um, picture of how the spirit um, almost is drawing us into this circle of glory. And you make the point, you make it in your translation of the New Testament too, that more often than not, the word spirit, which is often capitalized as Holy Spirit, is totally ambiguous. Paul could mean the Holy Spirit or our spirit. There's an intermingling. Or both at once. Or both at once. Could you just yeah. say a bit about that? Oh, yeah. This is um, an old problem with translating the New Testament. I even, I mean, I, I used capitals for the word spirit when I thought clearly it was trying to make a, a point about God's spirit in a special sense. But even then, I, I have put footnotes to make it clear that uh, quite often translations make this decision for us. What's Paul talking about? Paul is especially, okay, so, you know, must be the divine spirit. So spirit, well, let's add the word holy. So everyone, let's make it the Holy Spirit. Um, but quite often when Paul's speaking about spirit, it's not at all clear if he's drawing any kind of division between divine and created spirit here. And I think it's obvious at many points he's not. I think he, he does, just as, as I said, in Genesis, God's spirit is breathed into Adam and Adam becomes a living soul. Uh, so it is that for Paul, the, the, the spirit within us is already in some sense the divine spirit. And there are any number of reasons. When one goes into his metaphysics of what spirit is and how it's both at once physical and more than physical, natural and more than natural. Uh, I mean, that would, that would take uh, several weeks of lectures to go through because it's, you have to ground it in the language of the time. But it's interesting, you mentioned Irenaeus, for instance. He draws no distinction between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit in us, between Atman and Brahman, <laughs> so to speak. I'm sorry to use that. but. Uh, and uh, so Irenaeus says, if you uh, you know subtract the, the, the God's spirit uh, uh, from a human being, you you know you have only dead body and, and a departed soul. That uh, that what a human being is is body, soul, and the spirit of God making it live. That was incredibly. I mean, I might read that out because I happen to have it here. But I just found this Irenaeus quote stunning. Yeah. The integrative nature, what Irenaeus wrote was this, if one subtracts the flesh's substance, that is the fashioned clay, and reflects on only the naked spirit, so if we could kind of suck a spirit out of our body and have a spirit hanging up there, what remains is not the spiritual human, not the spiritual human, but only a man's spirit or God's spirit. Yet when this spirit is blended with the soul, and joined to the fashioned clay, 
So when the spirit is integrated with, the, with matter, what arises by the grace of the spirit's outpouring is a spiritual and complete human being. And it is this human being who has been created in the image and likeness of God. Right. It's wonderful. Yeah, that's something you can think about for a long time. Now that leads us through, and by the way, I'd just like to also make, I think, uh, a connection. You mentioned Genesis 2 verse 7, uh, this epic picture of God breathing spirit into, uh, into our bodies. And what you said, uh, I thought, again, very helpfully, um, is that the only way to understand Romans 8 verse 11 is seeing it as the fulfilment of Genesis 2, 7. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of the one who has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised the anointed one, Jesus, from the dead will also make your mortal bodies live through the indwelling of his spirit in you, which is sort of saying the resurrection is the fulfilment of Genesis 2, verse 7. Is that fair? Yes. And uh, again, I mean, many of the church fathers quite explicitly talk that way. John Chrysostom does in two sermons. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and just to finish on this notion, because I would like to finish on the resurrection, um, uh, a frequent criticism we, I, read, I read out earlier on of the patristic vision is that it ignores redemption and uh, the cross and sin. Um, there's a riposte to that which is very powerful, which is, yeah, 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 but the penal substitution model of the cross has equally ignored the resurrection and its role in soteriology. There was a great book written on that. Um, and I actually listened to a debate between um, Douglas Campbell and Douglas Moo on both sides of the fence, and at the end of it, uh, it was a civil debate, which was good. It was a discussion. That was good. I'm against those. Oh, no, no. You don't, you don't like those. Um, <laughs> there was a telling question, and Douglas Moo's response was telling. The question was, where's the resurrection in your model of redemption? And he was tongue-tied. He said, he was, uh, I liked his honesty. He said, I haven't thought. We have not thought about that enough. So, because it's such, such a small detail of the story. It's, it's like, it's I mean, like, you, you can easily miss it. <laughs> so, but I think, what, I, think, I think the way I used to think of the resurrection was like an exit door. You know, the, all the, the work was done on the cross, which was all the kind of payment for sins. And then he was the son of God, so the resurrection is just an exit door. And that is clearly inadequate. Uh, David, what's your response to the inadequacy of that? I mean, I, I, I say that the church fathers neglected the crucifixion. Uh, rather, they told the story in its entirety, for the most part, the greatest of them. Um, they took very seriously that, that, that uh, for, I mean, the, the penal substitutionary idea of atonement is, is an abomination. It has no scriptural warrant. It has no moral or logical. I was wanting to end on a, on a time note, David. <laughs> no, I mean it's 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 a it's an evil idea. I mean it's it's basically God is a bloodthirsty sadist who can only forgive you once somebody's gotten trampled, and if you if you know you're not uh, you know and if he has to do it to his own son, the outpouring of his wrath must be satiated. 
and this is exactly the opposite of Paul's view of the relationship between gospel and law. You know, it's exactly the opposite. It's also a, a ridiculously, I mean, to whom is, the, you know, the, the whole idea that, that, that on the cross there was an offering made to the Father is simply never appears in patristic literature which coincidentally uh, uh, fits rather well with it never appearing in the New Testament either. Um, you have Gregory of Nazianzus asked at one point, to whom was it made? Because Gregory of Nyssa in his or uh, uh, catechetical oration speaks of it being paid to the devil, the, you know, the Christ, death Death on the cross is a payment made to the devil to buy us out of slavery. That's the language Paul makes, in a sense. Uh, not, I mean, the, 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 the Paul almost uses, in a sense, to uh, because of course when he talks about what we call ransom, litron or antilitron, it means paying a price to set the captives free. It doesn't mean a, 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 a sacrificial payment to appease anyone's wrath. So the question he asks is, is the payment made to the devil, to death, to no one? Well, Gregory uses, Gregory of Nyssa sort of ironically says, well, it's paid to the devil, but it's a trap. Because the devil overextends, he bites it, it becomes a fish hook. Because, of course, the divinity is invincible, and so he's overthrown. But then, and remember Gregory is a universal, he says, that's all right, because it redounds even to the benefit of the devil. But Gregory of, of Nazianzus wants to, you know, say, well, let's not be quite so mythical. It's not made to anyone. It's just a price paid. This is the way we say that's the price that has to be paid to save someone's life. doesn't really mean somebody is receiving a payoff. But the notion that this is an offering to the wrath of the Father is literally unknown in the patristic period. That is a later very weird distortion. You don't even find it in Anselm. He's usually the one people argue in the, you know, the, the, right there at the midpoint of Christian history. It was Anselm who came up with it. No, that's, Anselm doesn't say that at all. That's a misreading. But this idea took hold, and then by the time you get to uh, the Institutes, you have this notion of penal substitutionary uh, atonement, which does away with this ancient narrative of Christ penetrating to the very depths of human brokenness, despair, and hell, the land, realm of the dead in the prophecy, and breaking it all open to set all the prisoners free. And then the resurrection is the consummation of that act. Instead, now the, now the act is one of appeasing an angry God who's already uh, uh, predilectively elected to a small minority of the, of the human race to be saved and could have done it without, this is the other thing, could have done it, Calvin tells us, without the, the resurrection, with, uh, without the, 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 uh, the, uh, the sacrifice of the cross. And then the, the resurrection, which was the center of the Christian hope of the early centuries, this, you know, that death has been overthrown that the true humanity, that of the resurrection body of Christ, which is divine and invincible and deathless and the body of love, that suddenly becomes just a coda. It's, oh, by the way, uh, it wasn't permanent. He paid God off with his death, but you know, once the payment was made, he got to go home again. It, 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 it's, 
it's worse than an impoverishment of the of of the Christian story. It's a it's a grotesque cartoon. It's you know it is a mockery of Christian faith. Well, one of the oh, but as I say, I, I, I like a nice equable conversation. <laughs> no, if I, it's an important issue, there should be blood on the floor at the end of the conversation. Yeah, so, but. but part of that, as I say, the corollary of that, which I've found increasingly interesting, is this various approaches to minimise resurrection, yeah. shrink it down, the meaning of the word. I mean, I just wish there was some other word that was hieroglyphics or something that when we came across it, we thought, what on earth does that mean? But our very fluency with the word means we shrug it off. And I had a conversation with a sweet friend the other day. I, I would like to, you have heard this, but I'm going to ask you to repeat what you told me. Whereas the, this person said, oh, my understanding of the resurrection is we all participate in Christ's resurrection and some of us are judged and go to hell in some sort of eternal resurrection status and, and others of us go to heaven. In other words, the resurrection is some kind of neutral, I don't know, cipher or something. Resuscitation. Uh, it's a resuscitation. And you said that's Islamic. No, I didn't say, I said that that, 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 that would be one uh, way in which uh, in sort of Sunni Islam, sometimes the, the, it's described as the resurrection for the judgment. It's true, um, but there are Sufi readings that are much more. But the Sunni reading, it, it's like But, but th there are Orthodox readings that are like the Calvinist reading or whatever, or the reading of your friend in which resurrection is just the prelude to judgment. Um, uh, I mean, nothing is just strictly Islamic or Christian or whatever. there are always sure. uh, nuances here. But what, what I, but, but what it means is that by the time of the rise of, of, of Islam, if it was, if it's language, if the language used there is in any way inflected by uh, Syrian Christianity or all, that, that maybe this has already begun to take hold. But it's certainly not the case for Paul, because for Paul, resurrection is salvation. That's the whole point. I mean. You know, we were raised in a spiritual body, one that is incapable of suffering and death, that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's quite clear about this in First Corinthians, and he means flesh and blood. He means this mortal substance. A spiritual body is not disembodied. That's the way we think today, because we're Cartesians. They thought of some spirit as something more powerful, more substantial, fuller, indestructible life. And that is salvation, and it's also ascent. I mean, there are many, there, there are different words for salvation, for resurrection in the New Testament, but one, anastasis, can mean again standing up, but it can mean rising upward. It can mean, and Paul uses the, the, uh, the when he talks about resurrection, he's talking about both. He's talking about, uh, the spiritual body, a new life, one that is not subject to death and sin, but also one that can rise up through the heavens to the heavenly places and be uh, to the place of the Father. Now, because he's a man of the time, he thinks of this quasi-physically, so that in one sense it's spatial, in another sense it's spiritual. In one sense it's temporal and historical, in another sense it's vertical and, and about the relation between time and eternity. We make these distinctions ancient religious thought less so, was less inclined to do so. 
Um, but it's clear from Paul, read him through very clearly, by re re resurrection is salvation. There, there, you know, there is a kind of judgment that occurs in Paul in the sense that one age will pass away and another come. And he talks in 1 Corinthians 3 of a fire of judgment, right? But the fire of judgment's a pretty limited thing because it, it's, it either, you know, the works we have done are left untouched by it and they are proved by the fire, that is, they pass through it, or those works are destroyed and we are saved by their destruction. So the fire of judgment he mentions is a fire of salvation and nothing else. There's nowhere in Paul the language of a fire of damnation or the notion of, of judgment in that sense. And definitely resurrection is not resuscitation for Paul. It just isn't. It's, it is radical transformation into the divine form of the risen Christ. Well, I think uh, that is a really nice thought to end on resurrection as salvation, as the transfiguration and transformation into the divine form of Christ, which is uh, deification. We're gonna have some question and answers, but before we do, how about we thank David for his thoughts and his life. Have you got energy for a few questions? I've got energy for a few answers. Uh, so I'll let someone else do the question. Oh, okay. okay. Um, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be stupid. No, I know you don't, uh, I, I know you, just you don't mean to hurt my feelings. I just mean to be flippant. So. Should I make the uh, public announcement? The announcement first, yes. Okay, so, uh, hi everyone. Uh, the books outside, they uh, were um, secured for us by Carl from the Little Lost Bookshop, so they're not, they're not our books, and he would like to sell them all. So, to entice you to buy some, if you haven't yet, um, if you grab this book, You Are Gods, or any of the other ones, you can then pick up the New Testament for half price, if that's an encouragement for you to, to grab them. So, um, yeah, please... And, uh, and I, can, I can recommend them. <laughs> I and, have tr and tremendous you... respect for the author. And, uh, <laughs> but in You Are Gods, I said one thing. I discovered why AI really is an evil thing, okay. At one point in uh, the chiasmus, I used the phrase in medius race from uh, Horace, and somewhere along the way, some computer autocorrect in the processing changed it to in media race because it doesn't recognize an S at the end of media as a real okay. word. So AI not only disfigured my text, yeah. but it turns out that it's it has, does not have a classical education. That's terrible. Yeah. terrible. And I mean, so if we're going to be subject to the machines, I'd like them to be better educated. Yes. So if people buy this book, you'll sign it and you'll correct yes, that put the type. Yes, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Good. Questions? Uh, let me start here. With... Uh... Here so he can break his neck. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, it's good to see you, Tim. Yeah. So last night, Tony began with his fundamental observation that the predominant view of the gospel 
is saturated with this idea of sin as opposed to creation and therefore his paradigm shift. But speaking of sin, it seems to me that you, one needs some account of the fall. And being from the United States, I think it's fair to say that many Christians, if not most, actually believe that the fall occurred as a result of a conversation between a woman and a snake around a tree. And I, I do well, know... from your part of the country, <laughs> Jim, I, I come from uh, Maryland, the land of Episcopalians right. and, and Jesuit-educated Catholics. <laughs> it's hard to get them to read the Bible at all. <laughs> but, yes. any, but I'll any, admit, yeah, it, yes. in the deep, dark hills. <laughs> but, in any event, I, um, I do know that you, like Bulgakov, you view the fall as an event that occurred outside of time, outside of history as such. And I think you actually characterized it in one of your books, if it's not your gods, as a primeval catastrophe. C can you comment on what was this primeval catastrophe? I mean, did, did it involve Donald Trump or what? <laughs> And golf. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, look, I, I, what, what Bulgakov talked about, this was actually a fairly common way of thinking, too. And in origin, it's explicit, but it becomes less so in later centuries, in part because of the odium that came to attach to Arjun's name. That, but the ancient world uh, from which you know, in which the early centuries of Christianity took shape, there is a distinction between time as we know it, chronos, and the eon, the sort of heavenly eternity that's the fullness of time. And God is beyond even that. God is beyond all ages. You find these formulations, like John of Damascus, you know, making this chronos, eon, and then the eperaeonian, the beyond ages. And, uh, uh, I don't, I mean, for, for origin, clearly the fall didn't really happen in historical time. This time of history and nature that we know has always been one of death and disease and violence. Not that, I mean, he didn't, he didn't know the history of evolution, but it wouldn't have surprised him because all the church fathers of the, the, of the Origenian tradition talked about God creating by creating rational seeds of nature that developed autonomously into life. And there's a kind of sense that the six days of creation are actually a natural process that led to the appearance of humanity. Uh, so that would, it, they, wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been appalled to learn that we, we descended from uh, uh, primates and the primates from, uh, and yet they still believed in the fall, you know, origin, because they thought that this is a different frame of time in which spiritual natures that were called from nothingness to union with God and Maximus, too, to be honest, Maximus says he, he, that from, and he's talking from the perspective of time, fall, creation and fall are more or less simultaneous. Uh, because, because that's how, you know, we, but he means from our perspective. Um, that all of uh, creation is called out of nothingness to union with God, but that, that it's in this other frame of time, the way in which we freely ascend to our existence in God as spiritual beings, and that's Bulgakov, obviously, that free ascent. In a sense, it's implicit in origin. Uh, 
turned away too, that we destroy. And, and so the whole history of cosmic violence, in a sense, and of course Maximus is, is the one who writes about this at greatest length, the whole history of cosmic violence is the result of our failure, the failure of the priestly mediation of our natures, joining heaven to earth, joining earth to paradise, joining nature to supernature, or whatever, well, not that he uses that term, supernature, joining the created to the divine, uh, joining with perfect harmony between man and woman, between humanity and animal creation. All of this is shattered from the first, from in the perspective of eternity. I think uh, you also usefully in a conversation said for Maximus, you know, the, fall, the effects of the fall was divisions, doesn't it? Divisions, yeah, well, that's what I mean. Paul, he talks about the division of heaven from earth, man from woman, uh, creation from paradise, you know, these, all these, the, the cosmic, all of which are healed in Christ and at the consummation of all things will be perfectly reconciled. Um, but until we see that, we don't really see the creation that God actually fashions in eternity, that the real creation of which this world is now a shadow on the way to becoming divine. Yeah. Hello. I have a quote from yourself. I just saw a quote that, and then I'll ask my question. Well, at least if, you're quoting an authority. Yes. You can trust it. I, 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 a world-renowned authority. Uh, I am also an intentional system whose mental events take the form of semiotic determinations and whose actions are usually the consequences of intentions that are irreducibly teleological. Okay, given that concept of humans as an intentional system um, whose actions are consequences of intentions, if God then has, on your argument, drawn the ontological parameters for created being, so in other words, programmed the data. I'm sorry, so what? Programmed the data into, so it's embedded, okay? The ontological par parameters are embedded in the created order. And if uh, universally, all are ultimately enveloped into divinity, so the created order returns, plays out the programming of the data that's been embedded. Yeah, I, I, I can't accept any of that. Hold on, and then, wait a minute, and then um, what happens to freedom, human agency, the intentionality of the system you've articulated isn't that removed from humanity? So you end up with a machine. You end up with a redundancy of consciousness, the type that you spoke of in the first talk we had. I, 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 liter I literally don't know what you're asking me. I, I have no notion of God having programmed the data of, or, you know, or embedded anything. But, in... but if you're having an ontological system, you've embedded an ontology Mm -hmm. Into the system, into the created order that's archetypical from the divine nature. That, that's what from the yeah. divine? So it is embedded into the creation from the archetype. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so oh, aren't oh, you removing, in, in the concept of no. universality, 
where is, I guess my question is this, where is, where is the intentional system in your model? Where is uh, human consciousness, human free uh, um, agency to, because it seems to me like it's just all a neat system where God's embedded the, the he started the beginning okay. and then yeah, he no, ends I, mean, I think we all understand yeah. what you're asking now, so let, let me answer. Um, I think that you're starting, first of all, with the notion of a final cause as a predetermination, but you're also starting with the notion of freedom and intentionality as spontaneous libertarian freedom, which if, I, I don't know if you were here the night of the lecture on evil we addressed, uh, which is an incoherent notion of freedom to begin with. I mean, in, in, if, if freedom consists in spontaneity without rationale, which it would have to do if we didn't have a paradigmatic final cause, then it would just be a creature of impulse. Well, impulse isn't actual freedom. It's no more uh, free will than, say, an aneurysm is. Uh, to be free is, is and within this, and we, this has actually been discussed during the course of the time I've been here, but it, you may not have been present. Uh, there has to be a, both a natural teleology, that is, uh, an end to your nature that allows it to be fulfilled, because if you can't fulfill your nature, then you can't be free. The only freedom is the full fruition of all the p potentialities that make you fully who you are, what you are, that allow you to become your truest self in relation to a horizon of absolute values that, that you naturally will. But within that, you have two levels of volition. One uh, is what Net Maximus calls the natural will, that is the will that is oriented just naturally towards the, the good, the true, the beautiful, the things that set us free from the close confines of just egoism uh, uh, or just from being mechanical events within a mechanical system. And then there's the deliberative will that, allow, that, that allows us uh, to make choices regarding uh, how, how, how we evaluate, judge, or act in regard to that. But without a rational horizon of desire, you can't be free at all. You have to have the ability to make judgments and make decisions and make choices, and you cannot do that in a void. You cannot simply pose it. You can't just posit your will, because that's, again, just a meaningless event. At first, it wouldn't even be possible, because without that prior uh, horizon of the, of the innately desirable as, as the only possible, really, liberating ends of a rational nature, you wouldn't even have the desire to posit ends for yourself. It's that prior primordial desire for, the, for that fullness that will make you God. To be free is to be God. And to be anything less than God is to be less than wholly free. And so don't think in terms of freedom simply as the act of choice. Choice is part of the, part of the system, maybe, part of how we get there. But real freedom is achieving the fullness of, of our potential in an absolute actuality that's nothing less than the freedom of divine love and knowledge. Um, I, but but y y if you're reducing it to like, you know, 
predetermination of a code that's been installed that, that you know, drives you towards an end that you're not choosing, that's already such a, 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 a first of all, it's not, it's not logically consonant with what we were talking about, but it also, you've already reduced even what choice is in your understanding of, of, of how a rational nature acts. And those sorts of mechanistic metaphors are already create such obscurity that they, they hide the real picture. Sorry, I'm not turning to look at you, but at the angle of the shows, I'm trying to. Um, Thanks. Sorry. <clears throat> um, yeah, I was just going to quote. Uh, we discussed book conversations. Uh, I was just going to quote from a from Matthew 13, where the the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and uh, just as a as a as an intro into your concept of the created order in terms of angelology, for example, you did mention I think demon and devil once this afternoon, but. Well, those are traditional terms, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But when Jesus is asked to explain that parable of that sort of separation of the wheat and the tares at the end of time, um, uh, he says, he who says the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So um, the concept of that, I think, following on from the previous question of accountability, in a sense, of I understand your brilliance of articulating being and the concept that to be at war with being is to be you know, utterly self-contradictory and futile. But it seems to me that whether it be the Gnostics or various uh, approaches that have take the pursuit of the truth or distort it, what you have used, the concept of evil, that which is not good, um, that there are consequences to this. Yeah. And are the consequences so significant um, that there is a reality that separates? I'm not sure if I'm making that myself clear. Um, because the, I suppose it's a challenge to the universalism approach. Yeah, but I mean, you know, uh, it's an old question. I mean, for Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and Isaac and Nineveh and all, they, they of course read that parable uh, as, as regarding, not, uh, quite often they read it as actually meaning the wheats and the tares uh, as being the virtues and vices in any given heart. I mean, so they, they uh, they, they actually read past it in another, in another sense, of course, all of those uh, passages about the end of the age uh, are using at once a prophetic and then an, a second temple language to describe, for the most part, imminent historical events. Um, and, and so when you get to a passage like that, which seems to stand apart, uh, the, the traditional reading was simply, yeah, there is a discrimination at the end of the age, and it's the one that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, it's the same thing, that, that, that there are those who are, whose works are proved by the fire and they enter in, and those who are saved is by the fire that, like, you know, tares are subject to the, the furnace. That would be how Gregory read it. Um, 
I mean, I think that the language, we, we, we forget to how much of the language Christ uses in its time was consisted in tropes that were specifically meant to fuse imminent histor or, or, or actual God's judgment within history with the symbolic language of an angelic assize. Uh, just in the same way that, say, in Jeremiah or at the end of Isaiah, uh, this language of, of destruction is used regarding the Gehenna, the, the uh, Gehinnom, the uh, Valley of Hinnom, meaning literally there where the, the corpses of the, of the slain will be thrown. But the, the judgment on Jerusalem and on Israel is also portrayed as kind of a, with a cosmic, uh, you know, it's one and the same thing as the cosmic judgment. And I think most of the language we have in the synoptics from Christ talking about these things is of much the same character. You're not supposed to have a specific notion of heaven and hell or even of preservation and destruction because Christ's metaphors keep shifting uh, intentionally. You know, sometimes he talks about an oven destroying things. Sometimes he talks about being left outside of the party so that you're, you know, well, it, sound, it sounds dramatic, the outer darkness gnashing our teeth, the way it's been translated. I mean, it really means, well, you're left outside at night while the party's going on and you're grumbling about it. You didn't get in when the kingdom arrived. At other times, it's described as being imprisoned and tormented until the last farthing is paid. But none of these is a, some final, I mean, none of these should be taken as, a, as an absolute image of a, thing that we can reduce to a proposition or a formula. It's historically situated at a time when this kind of language is routinely used to speak of a coming judgment in time, which may take the form of historical events like, say, the destruction of the temple in Israel. And it's also composed of metaphors that if taken literally, because it would seem to contradict each other, and it also seems to be consonant with the kind of language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 3. That's why it's a good idea to avoid proof texting, because if you take anything out of the context of the whole, it can be mistaken for a proposition rather than an image or a symbol pointing towards something that can't be reduced to a proposition. I think uh, one just other general point, because uh, we've used the patristics a lot, is um, they were uh, fiercely committed to ascetic lives and to obedient lives. A lot of their sermons you know, would, uh, would frighten people in an ordinary church today. It wasn't as if they uh, were, they took accountability probably more seriously than we do. In a way I speculate that to the degree they had either a universal vision or else a more, uh, you know, beatific vision of the end of all things, sort of frees them up to be stronger on accountability. Um, and uh, they, that might seem a paradox, it's not to me at all, uh, but they were, you know, personally lived very disciplined lives. I mean, the Cappadocian, they were very rich and they gave their riches away, built hospitals, I mean, and then of course Gregory's, you've, you've often said, uh, 
if for nothing else, he would be famous in, in Western literature as being the first person we know of to condemn slavery, root and branch. Um, so accountability, and, and in that sermon on slavery, what he uses for his argument is all that you've just been talking about, made in the image of God. How can you own and trade the image of God? That, that's his argument. And uh, was it? Because you'd have to own the whole, to own one soul is to own the whole universe. Yes. Yeah. And how can you own the whole universe? And uh, some other questions. So we'll just have a couple more to finish. Thanks. Hey, thanks, Dave. Ooh, up the back. Um, you've said today about uh, how our desire to know a tree is at, at its core, uh, ultimately a desire to know God, to be understand our unity with God. Uh, you said much the same last night. I wonder if you can argue through that rather than uh, you, you've sort of stated it as, as a claim. Um, if I walk past a tree and a branch falls on my head, I, I want to know the tree so that it doesn't hurt me again. How, how do you get from there to saying that that is essentially a, my desire for God? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's an easy step, really. I mean, uh, if you assume, as classical theism does, that God is the transcendent fullness of being, then you assume that the transcendentals, goodness, truth, beauty, refer to the divine essence and coincide there, right? Well. Again, it's the issue of infinite regress. Why do you desire anything? Uh, let's not talk about the tree hitting you on the head because that's obviously a specific occasion. And even that can be traced back to a desire uh, for well-being, which is a desire for the good. But just say, and let's not even talk about desire for knowledge. Uh, well, yes, let's talk about Why do you desire to know something about, if you look at a tree, why do you desire to know something about the tree? Do you want to know something true about the tree? Can your, does your desire then terminate in the tree or, does it, or, or do, is it a desire for truth? Is there something inherently attractive to your mind about true knowledge? Or, I mean, would you be satisfied with complete illusion regarding the tree? Even then you would be, you would be pursuing that for a desire for a pleasure that is well-being, right? There's always, a deferral of concrete desires towards a more general desire, towards that which is desirable in itself. It just seems you only have to consult your own experience to know this. I think this thing is beautiful. Well, what does that mean? I desire it because it's beautiful. How do you judge it's beautiful? Well, in the light of beauty as such. And what makes a beautiful thing desirable is the desire for beauty as such. You can never come to rest. You can never terminate the explanation, the sequence of rationales for any sort of desire or the desire to know, the desire to act in a certain way, the desire to adore something as beautiful or pleasing uh, in, in and of itself alone. It's always, the, the finite end always presumes a more absolute and general end. It's only when you get to the point of that which is intrinsically desire to, desirable to a rational nature that you discover you're able to think in terms of, say, beauty. Let's choose that one because that, there is just the, an object of desire as such without any 
necessarily, necessarily pragmatic or utilitarian employments, right? So beauty, in a sense, is uniquely clarifying in this regard. You, you, you discover that, you know, you have a prior necessary desire for beauty utterly absolved of empirical residue. Beauty in itself, not beauty of this as some particular object among others, but the transcendent index by which you judge all other things beautiful. It just seems to me that's obviously the case, that, that you can desire something in itself or for the sake of something else, and when you think about it, you realize that nothing finite can be desired simply in itself. It must be desired also for the sake of something else, uh, something more original, more primordial, to the point where nothing merely finite and empirical defines it. Um, is that clear enough? It, it's obviously true. This isn't, even, this isn't even a controversial notion. You make a judgment every time you make a choice. You desire an end, but if you say that, you know, well, even if it's just pleasure, that seems obvious, you know, I, I desire pleasure. Well, you're going to find that even that is embraced within a more general desire uh, for the goodness of being itself, for being alive, for participating in the goodness of being. You're never going to be able to reduce your ration to the object itself because it has no identity for you as anything at all apart from a rational judgment contingent upon a prior transcendental orientation of the mind and will. It just is. Um, but that sounds too instrumental. You're saying that I desire the tree because of what it does for me to give me, no, uh, give me something, no, you something else. You desire the tree. It's because I'm looking for beauty that I, I see the tree, and the tree somehow satisfies my desire for beauty. Yeah. So the tree is just an instrument to help some other desire. No. But yeah, that, that that's, doesn't help making, explain why I want to know that's, the, the tree make, itself. You're making a leap of logic there that's totally unwarranted. To say that my ability to desire the tree in itself is contingent upon a prior transcendental orientation towards the good, the true, the beautiful, whatever, that's precisely what allows me to recognize it and know it and love it in itself. If I, uh, you know, have an experience, a transcendent experience with a koala bear, as happened to me two days ago. He was looking at me, I was looking at him. We were exchanging all sorts of sympathetic glances, looks of curiosity, melting looks. Love. But the truth is, what allowed me to know and recognize, I mean, just recognize him as another being, as someone out there named Byron, as it happens, which is a good name for a koala bear. I have to ask the people at Featherdale why I called him that. But, um, you know, I'm not talking about simply, you're talking about instrumentality towards an end. I'm telling you that that end is, you could just as well say that's instrumental. That desire for the good, the true, and the beautiful allows me to encounter with actual, real, finite instances of good, true, beautiful koala bears. And koalas, I shouldn't say bears. They're not really bears, you all know this, they're marsupials. But, um, but uh, you know, if you don't have that, then it's, it's just as a matter of 
phenomenological fact, you have no way of interacting with anything. You cannot, you live in a world that is at once spirit and flesh, spirit and form. Mm. Uh, I, if, I, if I don't have a, a concept, uh, you know, if I don't have a prior orientation to those ends, I can't interact with Tony as a, as a real person, as this person, as a person who's eh, eh, beautiful. Uh, good, true. I mean, it's, it, 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 I don't see how any other, I mean, there's just no other way of conceiving of how we encounter the world. I think um, uh, um, just a, another paradigm shift on the same question, and we might end here, is uh, uh, the idea of not rather than seeing the tree as a transaction, but the, as a gift. And if I see anything as a gift, I mean, I'm quite nostalgic. I can't throw away the numerous cards my grandchildren have written for me. Uh, those presents they gave me were in view of a relationship. And to view the whole of creation, like the tree, as a gift is another way of saying, I think what you're, exactly what you're saying is that it's, a, it's not a transaction, but it's a bridge to the giver behind the gift. Therefore, the whole goal of God is to enact a covenantal relationship with us through the gift of creation. And um, another way, I think, of saying the same thing. Yeah, well, within your, in your regard, somewhere is the sentence that the finite is always the gift of the infinite. That's it. That's right. Yeah. yeah, which is a beautiful, a beautiful sentence to, to finish on, that the finite is always the gift of the infinite. So we're swimming in glory, swimming in mystery. I think it's a good place to stop here. Uh, we've really appreciated you, you David, um, coming this far. I know that you uh, have compromised lungs from a, a very bad illness and so for you extended speaking is not easy so we've appreciated it and your nebulizer that's helped you yes there's your nebulizer thank you um and david he's uh, named byron too for some reason <laughs> I, uh, um i think uh I've certainly, and many others, have appreciated n not just your mind uh, or your bravery, but the way you've expanded horizons. You know, whether you, we agree with everything or not, I don't think you'd expect that. But so it's was. certainly an expansion. <laughs> you'd expect book sales, yeah. I know, but an expansion of horizons. And I mean, I, I keep, when I read what you write, I keep thinking of what Plato said, in, uh, which is all writing is actually an act of love. Now, I know you like an irascible brand, David, it suits you, but we know that I think you have a great spirit of love for the world, and thank you for the gifts you've given the world.